Welcome to the premiere episode of the Richardson Symphony Orchestra podcast, Portraits and Music. I'm Ross Sievertson, along with music director and conductor Clay Caturio. Hi, Ross. I'm really looking forward to this new podcast. I am too. It's going to be really exciting and a great opportunity for us to connect with our patrons and community. And our guest today is uh, the RSO's executive director and president, Laurie Garvey. Thank you for being here today, Laurie. Thank you, Ross. Laurie, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your history with the orchestra? Absolutely. Um, I have been working for the RSO uh, since January of 2013. I started just a few months after Clay did. And um, I, a little bit of background about me. I went to the University of Texas at Austin, and I have a degree in radio, television, film. And then I started my career here in the Dallas area um, at JCPenney. And I started working there in 1989 and was there for 22 years in a variety of divisions from catalog advertising to product development. And um, then transitioned into the world of nonprofits. And it's really exciting to be able to work in Richardson as well as live in Richardson. We've been living here for 24 years, and it's wonderful to be enmeshed in the community and um, to be to be a part of everything that goes on in such an exciting city. Thank you. We're excited to hear the stories and, and background and the history of the RSO as we kind of continue our conversation. And I would just add to that that it's been a special pleasure for me to work with Laurie. Uh, we wouldn't be here today like she said, we came almost together, and we wouldn't be here today at the level that we are now without all of her hard work. We're really glad to have you here today, Laurie. So having so much background in the city of Richardson and with the symphony, can you give us a little bit of history of the Richardson Symphony Orchestra here in North Texas? Absolutely. Um, Most people don't realize that the RSO has been around for so long. It was actually founded in 1961 by Chris Zeros. Originally, the RSO was a very small community orchestra, and it just provided local musicians an opportunity to play and perform symphonic music for themselves and then for a small audience. Um, One of the interesting things is that the RSO originally performed in a recreation center on Greenville Avenue, and there were railroad tracks running by, and so sometimes during rehearsals and concerts, a train passed by, and they had to up the the volume of the performance. A little bit of noise in the background there, Exactly, exactly. That's the beauty of live performances. You never know what's going to happen. And then as the years went on, the orchestra grew in size and caliber, and uh, they moved to the Richardson High School Auditorium and performed there for many, many years because, of course, back in the 60s and 70s and 80s, 90s, Richardson didn't have a performing arts center, so that was the best option. I remember that going in, uh, being a, a graduate of Richardson High School, the RSO, performing uh, at the performance hall at the high school was a was a fond memory of mine growing up. I bet. They used a lot of volunteers, students, and, and other people from the community to take tickets and sell concessions. It was quite a community event. And then um, there was a huge initiative from the city, city leadership, city council, and many volunteers in the community who worked for about 10 years to 
create a plan to build a performing arts center. And um, through many years and many people being involved in that project, we now are very fortunate to have the Charles W. Eisman Center for Performing Arts. And that officially opened in September of 2002. And it is a beautiful facility, and we're so fortunate to be able to perform there on the Hill Performance Hall stage. And the hall seats 1,563 people. And um, we have a fantastic orchestra shell um, that provides great acoustics. So it's just a wonderful venue, and we're, we're very proud to be able to perform there. So one of the unique things about the RSO is that in our 58-year history, we've only had three conductors. Maestro Caturio is only our third conductor, so that's pretty special. That is very special. So, Maestro, can you give us a little bit of background on the conductors that the symphonies had over the years? Absolutely. Um, there have been three conductors, as Laurie mentioned. Uh, Chris Zeros actually was the founding director of the, of the orchestra uh, in 1961, and um, there are... And Anshul Brusilov became music director in 1992 and myself in 2012. And we're all three different people, different personalities, and that affects the, the orchestra in different ways that I'll talk about later. Um, but also, we have a lot of things in common, and we are all three string players. Uh, Chris and Anshul uh, both play the violin, and I play cello. And um, most conductors will... Um, have their main instrument, uh, and usually an orchestral instrument. doesn't have to be. Sometimes a pianist will um, become, have become great conductors. Uh, but in this case of this orchestra, it just happened to be all string players. And two-thirds of your orchestra are string players, so it's good to, to know uh, how to play. To know the instrument, yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and in my opinion, the best way to learn to become a conductor is to play in an orchestra. You learn what to do from great conductors, and you learn, more importantly, what not to do from other conductors. Uh, but Chris founded the orchestra in 1961. He was a violinist. He uh, was also a music teacher in the uh, Dallas Independent School District for many years, I believe 30 years or so, a long time. And he went to school um, uh, at the University of North Texas, where uh, I teach now, and Mr. Bruslov taught for many years. Um, one other thing in common for all three conductors, we all, we all went to the Pierre Montour School for Conductors and Orchestral Musicians, and that's a school up in Maine. It's a festival that's uh, done primarily in the summer months, and Montour was one of the most famous conductors of the 20th century. He was a French conductor and um, premiered many, many famous works uh, – one that I can, just comes to mind is Stravinsky's uh, the Rite of Spring, which is now one of the staples of the, of the repertoire. But uh, Montour was just a, a wonderful conductor, one of the greats, but he also wanted something more, and he said, I must teach, and, and that was a big deal for him. And many of the conductors throughout the world are now have a lineage through Montour. Uh, Chris started the orchestra. It was a community orchestra primarily. It was a lot of music teachers who wanted to get together and have an outlet to perform. And there was so much success, it kept growing and growing. And um, I think he was director for 30 years. Is that right? 
And then Brusilov came, and he has a, an extraordinary background. He rose to the level of the orchestra tremendously. Brusilov, um, like I said, was violinist and was concertmaster of the uh, Philadelphia Orchestra during its heyday in the, in the 60s. Before that, he was associate concertmaster of the, of the um, Cleveland Orchestra. And so he worked with many, many great conductors in Cleveland with George Zell and in Philadelphia with Eugene Ormandy. And Leopold Stokowski, who was music director before Ormandy, came back during that time. He, had, he left the orchestra in 1935, and like I said, Brusilov was there in the 60s. Uh, after 30 years, I guess it was enough time had passed where he felt like he could come back and guest conduct, and that was a big to-do at the time. But my whole point of all this is th these were giants uh, of the field. And so to have worked with those uh, type of people is just invaluable. And you learn, like I said, what to do, what not to do. And he, he learned basically on the job training of conducting while being concertmaster of the orchestra. And I just think that's the, the, one of the most important learning skills um, to becoming a conductor. Then after Mr. Brusilov left the Philadelphia Orchestra as concertmaster, he formed the Chamber Symphony of Philadelphia as its music director and conductor. And this is a big turning point. He had, he had conducted while he was violinist in the past, but this was full-time position music director. This was an important point in his career. And this was a full-time uh, chamber orchestra, which was not common at all at the time. And they recorded, I believe it was five albums on the RCA label. So this, this was a huge to-do. Uh, after he was uh, com finished uh, with that, he became the uh, conductor and actually the executive director both, which is an unusual set of titles for the Dallas Symphony, uh, which he did for, I believe, three years, years or so. And he also after that, taught at the University of North Texas, then went to SMU, and then back to North Texas. And he did that for, I think, a total of almost 35 years or so. So that was uh, a big portion of his life. So he, I would put his life in three categories, uh, violinist, conductor, and teacher. And so uh, in 92, I believe the orchestra was still playing in the uh, – in the high school, and they did that for about 10 years. And I, I really believe at that time, Brusilov used that decade to, to um, enhance the orchestra. Um, you know, the orchestra fulfills a cultural need for a community. And I know, um, I believe that. Uh, I, I'm a student of Brusilov, and, and he instilled that in me, and I know he believed that. And the way to do that is to um, it gives it gives the uh, community a sense of pride to have an orchestra. That's what it fulfills. And how do you create pride for an orchestra? It's all through performance. It's all through how well you can play. What type of standard of performance are you going to give? And once you have that sense of pride, it's shown in many ways. It's shown from the audience giving to the players, and from the players believing in themselves. That's what counts. That's how you get this pride. But again, it's created through the standard of performance. And uh, Brusilov did that by 
bringing in the best players possible when openings happened and uh, programming difficult, not just difficult works, but works that can only be performed at a certain level by a certain level orchestra. And he did that so well. And, uh, and once you do that, guest artist wants to come in and play with the orchestra. From a, from a technical proficiency perspective, is that, is that what I hear you saying? Uh, yes, yeah, that's one aspect of it. But also from a musical aspect or an emotional aspect of playing, too. I mean, I've been in concerts, I've played in concerts, because I, I, like, my instrument's cello, and I played in many orchestras for uh, many years. And from a technical standpoint, I played in concerts that were almost technically perfect, but from an emotional standpoint, were rather boring. So what do you get out of that? Not much. On the reverse of that, I've, I have played wonderful musical interpretations, and there were technical flaws. You get a lot more out of that, even though they're, they're in live performance, there are flaws. Uh, by the way, if you think you've done a technically perfect performance, it's time to start a new profession because that doesn't exist. <laughs> There's always things that can be better. But the point is musicians and the audiences are much more forgiving of certain certain technical things if the musical interpretation and the feeling is there. They're not so much forgiving if they feel nothing and it just sounds perfect. So The uh, technical and the emotional side were raised so well by Bruce Love during that decade that um, – they almost outgrew where they were playing. And I think they needed a hall that rose to the level of what they were playing. And that's when, in 2002, they moved to the Eisman Center. And uh, once they had the hall, then they could do even more things and brought out more uh, of, of the excellence in the orchestra. And you always program to your strengths. And... Um, at, you know, the orchestra is like any other corporation. At times, certain parts of the corporation are doing well, and others, it might be needing to get better. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and so, but you always show your strength, or like a football team. Right. You play to your strength. Right. And um, a great hall can be uh, an advantage, but a disadvantage also, because sometimes in a great hall, it, everything is live, everything is there. So by the time that the orchestra moved to the Eisman Center, they were ready for the Eisman Center. They were at a, a level that would uh, compete with the, with the hall itself because the hall shows off a lot more things. You can hear a lot more things in a hall because the acoustics are so great. And the orchestra was ready at that time. So it kind of coincided, the level of the orchestra and the new hall. Uh, so when I arrived, uh, Brusilov had left a, a wonderful group of players, and we, I knew many of them al- already because I've been in the area for a while. I've taught at UNT, and I played in local orchestras uh, around the uh, Metroplex, and, uh, but I always wanted to conduct. I knew that from an early age. That was just what I wanted to do. I started on piano, and after that, my orchestral instrument is cello, and at the first orchestra rehearsal, I, I knew that's that's what I want to do. That's uh, to be able to express in that way was important to me. But you don't go to school first just to become a conductor. You have to learn 
what it means to play in an orchestra. So you learn an orchestra instrument, and you play in orchestras, and then you sometimes get a shot at it. Sometimes you don't, and that's just that's the nature of the business. So why did you select the cello, Clay? Well, I had started on piano, uh, and I'd done that for two or three years, and then I was in elementary school, and the teachers bring all the instruments in and let you play on them and try them and all and everything. And I, these were all string instruments at the time. The the band, the wind instruments came later. Uh, so I tried certain instruments and I liked them all. I just, I, I, it was hard for me to choose. I didn't know. And my buddy at the time, little kids, sitting next to me said, I, I dare you to write down cello on this piece of paper so they'll go and I did I said okay I'll show you and I wrote down cello and it stuck with me ever since it's been there ever since but uh, I love the cello it's to me it sounds has the range most of a human voice and sounds most like a human voice which is the sound that every musician is trying to emulate when they play and um, you have to be committed when you're a, a music student at a young at any age but especially at a young age and you pick a larger instrument. It's not. It's a medium-sized instrument, I guess. It's larger than the violin and the viola or the flute, but it's not as large as the double bass or the tuba. But my point is, you have to carry it around wherever you go, to back and forth to school. And um, at one point, we lived right behind uh, the school I went to, and I would walk to school with the cello. But I'd have to, like I said, carry the cello with me, and walking meant getting over the fence to get to school and so with a cello I've tried to figure out how to do this without breaking the cello and uh, I finally devised a way and I don't can't believe my parents let me do this or maybe they don't know but I uh, went out back went around the corner of the of the house and the back fence and we had firewood piles of firewood for the winter and I would climb on the pile of firewood that was next to the fence. With your cello. With the cello. And uh, my buddy went with me, and he would jump over the fence first, and I would carefully hand him the cello over the fence, and then I would jump over the fence. Now, was it in a case or just like... It was in a case. Uh, it was This was early on, so I didn't even have a hard case at the time. It was a soft case. So was, <laughs> either way... You have to be careful. I mean, um, even with a hard case, and I say that because professional musicians who now travel and they go on airplanes, they have the hard case. They're they're reluctant at all to put it with the luggage because you know what happens with luggage down below. It gets thrown around. So, But at the time, hard case or soft case, very carefully. And my, my uh, friend who helped me, my buddy, Sometimes almost almost felt like he was a uh, baggage handler because he he would kind of throw it around. I'd say, "Hey, you can't do that." He didn't understand, but but I did that for many years. That's how I got to school uh, with the cello. And so here's young Clay uh, heaving his cello over the fence to his buddy <laughs> in hopes that uh, that he's going to make it to school on time and that it won't break uh, uh, as he gets it over the fence. That's right, and then. Uh, it was get it to the uh, cello locker to have school and have orchestra and, and definitely have to retune by then after the haul over the fence. <laughs> That's great. That's a great story. So like I was saying, I arrived uh, in 2012, and uh, the orchestra was at a certain level. And 
I wanted to put my mark on things a little bit. Every conductor wants to. So when uh, new hires became available, I was able to put in players that I thought would work well with the players in the orchestra and keep raising that standard and uh, select repertoire that best fit the orchestra for that for even that season. It, it can even be a season-by-season season thing, What what is necessary. So part of raising the level of the orchestra has to do with repertoire itself. Uh, what does the orchestra need to raise uh, its level through repertoire? And to do that, you you can select uh, pieces in different ways. One is pieces that show off your orchestra or members of the orchestra. There are some, let's for example, some famous clarinet solos in this piece. Well, if your clarinetist is up to it, you show that off. And in our case, absolutely. Um, it becomes fun when everything's going working well all together at once, and it doesn't matter what piece you pick, it's, it's going to be shown off. That's great. Um, also, in selecting some of the, the repertoire, what is it that the audience not only wants to hear, that's one thing, but what is it that they need to hear that's part of the tradition of the orchestra? That's important. But you can only do that, again, when the standard is, is set and ready. So speaking of repertoires, uh, Maestro, can you tell us a little bit about the repertoire that you have planned for the 2021 season of the Richardson Symphony? Absolutely. Our opening night concert is on October 3rd, and we have uh, works by three iconic composers, wonderful composers. We open the season with Barber's Samuel Barber's The School for Scandal Overture, and that's a uh, concert overture. It, overture usually is a work that opens a, a bigger work, like an opera or a ballet or uh, things of that nature, or, a, or concert music for a play. Well, this is a concert overture just for its own sake. Barber was really influenced by uh, Richard Sheridan, who wrote a comedy. This is based on a, a play, but this is separate from it, so it's just its own overture. And then the orchestra will perform the symphonic dances from West Side Story by Bernstein. And this, of course, most a lot of people are familiar with West Side Story, the musical. That's which, great. Love which, that. Which was made even more famous when it was, it was in the movie. And uh, Bernstein himself was uh, quite a character. He is known now for, of course, being the one of the great conductors of the 20th century, but he was also a composer, and he was a pianist, too. Those were his three claims to fame, and he did them all very well. Uh, sometimes better at one point than another, but it's, you can't maintain all of them all at the same level at the same time. So he devoted certain times of his life to these different uh, areas. Uh, but West Side Story uh, lends itself to the symphony orchestra, the way that, that Bernstein wrote it. And um, it's also a piece that goes over several genre of music. I mean, it's, it's, it can be considered in a way classical, but it's also very jazzy. It's also, it's, it's in the uh, musical realm, um, musicals, that is. And so it's a wide array of different styles of music, and which means a wide array of 
people will enjoy it too. And then we're also going to play uh, Beethoven's Violin Concerto in D major. This is the 250th anniversary of Beethoven's birth, and so there's a lot of celebrating going on uh, for Beethoven. That could be any year for me. I'm a big, huge Beethoven fan. Sure. But particularly this year. And we are going to play, uh, or, or actually Richard Lynn, who is the gold medalist of the uh, Indianapolis Violin Concerto, is going to come and perform the work. We will accompany him. Uh, I mentioned that competition because this past season we had Jinju Cho come perform the Mendelssohn. And, and every violinist is different, I know that, but I knew she was a past winner of this competition as well. And I had such a great collaboration with her. I thought, that's special. Uh, let's bring an, uh, another winner from that competition in. And so uh, Richard is going to come and perform that work. Beethoven wrote this. This is the only violin concerto. You know, some composers, Mozart wrote five violin concertos and things of that nature. It's important. This is the only one that he wrote. And it's um, Beethoven had three musical periods. This is from the late middle section middle period and um, it takes a it's a mature work it takes a high level of thought to to pull off a, uh, this this particular concerto and I, I look forward to hearing Richard's version of it so how do you put a repertoire like that together maestro well that's a good question that's a hard question actually uh, these are three great composers they lived relatively at different times. Uh, Barber and Bernstein closer, but Beethoven much before. You know, sometimes you'll program around a period, the same period. Sometimes it's different periods. Uh, in this particular case, I, I try to pick a cornerstone work. And what I mean by that, that can mean several things. That can mean a larger scale work. Uh, that can mean a more difficult work. In this case, the Beethoven can be considered the cornerstone piece of work of the concert because it's much longer than the other pieces. This one is, the Beethoven is about 40 minutes long, the Bernstein uh, 23-ish or so, and, and uh, the School for Scandal 10 to 12, depends on how fast or slow you go. Mm -hmm. uh, a cornerstone work, typically if it's a longer work, can go on its own half. A Beethoven concerto is is and this is all opinion, by the way, right? Sure. Uh, it's, it's, it can be subjective. The Beethoven concerto, like I said, since it's long, can fit, it, fit on its own half. Uh, some conductors will put it on the first half with an overture in front of it. But then you got to be careful what goes on the second half because you don't want to overshadow uh, that work. It's got to be even a bigger type of work. In this case, since the symphonic dances, it's a, it's a quite... Uh, bombastic in certain ways, uh, but also very sensitive and, and loving in other ways. But like I said, it's not quite as long, so I put that in the first half. So, what is involved with rehearsals? How do that? How does that take place, and where? Well, rehearsals for the RSO all take place at the Eisman Center on the Hill Performance Hall stage. And for our classical concerts, we typically have four rehearsals before the concert. And then usually for our Pops concerts, we have two rehearsals. And uh, rehearsals are all two and a half hours on the dot with one 15-minute break. And um, 
for the classical concerts, the rehearsals take place on weeknights in the evenings uh, because most of our musicians are professional musicians or music teachers or they have corporate careers. So they're all coming to the hall from their daytime jobs. And so we have to allow for for traffic and dinner and all of that. So it's a big commitment to play in an orchestra like this. It's a big commitment from the musicians to uh, have the time to to dedicate to their career as well as to their craft. So a lot of work takes place at home weeks and weeks before each concert takes place so that they come to the first rehearsal prepared. And I'll add to that that... um the rehearsal process is where everything takes place so that we can have the performance that everyone is expecting. And that's the critical part of this whole process is the rehearsal process. It's my favorite part because you you can work on things, you try certain things, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. Um, these are all highly specialized individuals. They've worked on their instruments for many years. And th- we're all, hopefully, having the same goal in mind. And uh, the great thing about music is the process of getting to that goal. And these three works in this concert, uh, as contrasting as they may be, provide different ways of doing that for the musicians. And... Um, I look forward to the concert. And the second concert of our season is on November 7th, and it also has three composers on uh, the concert. Mozart's Symphony No. 31 in D major, which is nicknamed the Paris Symphony. And he wrote this uh, work to show off the qualities of the Paris orchestra uh, of the time. It was a wonderful orchestra, and so there's a lot of virtuosic moments, and, and it's very vibrant, very beautiful. And next on that program is uh, a work by the Spanish uh, composer Rodrigo, and it's a guitar concerto. And our soloist will be Salil Refik Kaya, and he is uh, the winner of the 2012 Joanne Falletta Guitar Competition with the Buffalo Philharmonic. They, the Joanne Falletta is the conductor of the Buffalo Philharmonic, and they have this competition that he won. And uh, it's a very flamboyant uh, work uh, and but also has tender moments at the same time and the program finishes with Richard Strauss's Le Bourgeois Gentle Home which is uh, the would-be gentleman or the middle-class aristocrat and uh, Richard Strauss is well known for these large-scale tone poems these big massive orchestra undertakings uh, this is for a smaller sized orchestra but still has all of those other elements to it it's almost like a small orchestra can do what a big orchestra can do is what he's trying to prove here and um, this work is also what I would consider the cornerstone uh, piece of of the program and it's based on uh, a a play as well and um, this work also shows off many players in the orchestra. There's a predominant violin solo that our concertmaster Elizabeth Atkins will play. There's uh, also a cello solo, uh, and there's a a wonderful piano part, and a big clarinet solo, so things of that nature. We just show off members of the orchestra.
Our next concert is on December 5th. It's our Holiday Classics concert. Uh, we do this every year in December. And we're going to feature the Richardson Community Chorale this year. I am really looking forward to that concert. We had, a, we had the opportunity to collaborate with them for the Celestial Celebration concert last September. Um, that concert was made possible through a special grant that we received from Ann and Charles Eisman. And that concert was a collaboration with um, the School of ATEC at the University of Texas at Dallas, as well as with the Richardson Community Chorale. And that was a huge success. Yes. Great success. Wonderful program. And we performed uh, Hulse the Planets, and the very last movement of that is Neptune. And on Neptune, it calls for a women's chorus. And so we used the, the women from the Richardson Community Chorale, and uh, we had such a great time working together, and their director, who's Ian Gill, that we decided to invite them to come for the holiday concert for this season. So it will technically be our second collaboration with them, our first with the entire choir, but our second overall collaboration. And we'll have uh, just a wonderful variety of, of different holiday classics. For this for this performance I know all of our patrons look forward to the holiday concert every year I know I and my wife do and I particularly like when we do it we do it in early December because the closer you get to the end of December it, it gets quite hectic so it's a, it's a great time to come out and enjoy some wonderful music and then our next concert is in February so we give you a little bit of a break uh, February 6th of 2021. I can't believe I'm saying that year, but it is. Uh, We're calling this concert The Great American Road Trip. So the orchestra will take a trip basically around the United States, and we'll start uh, in the Northeast, and we'll go all through. I'm not going to give you our travel plans yet, but we go all through, and we're going to have uh, different musical selections that are known in that particular area. So we'll have, of course, uh, if we go to Tennessee, for example, we might have to stop by and see Elvis for a little bit. Uh, If we go down to uh, Miami, Gloria Estefan and different uh, Latin music. And uh, we might even end up in California with some Beach Boys. Uh, There's a lot in between there, of course, but I'm I'm only giving you just a a hint of, of, of... the type of music we'll be doing. Sounds like a lot of fun. But what makes it even more special is uh, the collaboration we're going to have with the School of ATEC at University of Texas at Dallas. And as Laurie mentioned earlier, uh, they were also part of our Celestial Celebration last September. And they provided visuals. This was just beautiful on a large screen of uh, when we did the planets. And uh, I don't think it would have been as successful as it, as it was with, without that collaboration. That's right. And so they're going to, it's going to be a different type of uh, illustrations and, and background than that was, but it'll coincide with all of these places we're going on our Great American Road Trip. And then our next performance on March 6th is going to have the Brahms uh, Third Symphony in F major. And I'm really looking forward to this. We had uh, performed the Brahms first symphony a couple years ago and my very first season the very first concert we did the Brahms second and I really would like to get through eventually all four symphonies that Brahms wrote with the orchestra and so it's time to do another one and uh, looking forward to the third symphony it's of the four symphonies the shortest just a by a little bit 
but by no means does that mean less content. It's full of lush, beautiful, melodic lines and phrases and, and things of that nature. Uh, also on that concert will feature uh, the winner of the Ann and Charles Eisman Young Artist Competition. We have that competition annually, and I'll let Laurie say a few words about that. Sure. So this is an annual competition, and it alternates between being um, a competition for strings musicians and for pianists. This coming year, it's going to be a competition for piano. Um, The students from all over the world will be sending in their concertos in November, and then uh, the judges will be screening those performances and determining who the 14 semifinalists are. And then the semifinalists will come here to perform for two well-known judges and Maestro Couturio, and that will take place on January 8th. And then the winner of that competition will receive $5,000 and will perform as our guest artist at that March concert. And as far as uh, repertoire, you, you know, we don't know what that person's going to play. We don't know who the winner is, and we don't know what they're going to play. So sometimes that coincides to what we've already programmed, and sometimes we have to uh, think about how we all this is all going to work. So occasionally I'll add a shorter work with it or whatever is necessary to to uh, fill out a wonderful program. Very good. And the Young Artist Competition is a hallmark of the Richardson Symphony and the Eisman's contributions to the symphony. Isn't that right, Laurie? That's correct. Um, This competition started out over 30 years ago, and it was originally the Lennox International Young Artist Competition because the Lennox Corporation was the chief sponsor. And then, um, you know, Times change and things transition, and um, now for the last five years, Anna and Charles Eisman have been the key sponsors for this competition. They give us a very generous grant each year, which supports that competition. We're very, very grateful to them for their support and um, for the opportunity to be able to enrich the lives and opportunities for talented young musicians. And then our season finale concert will be on April 17th. And it will feature uh, Daniel Su, who is the uh, bronze medalist from the 2017 Van Clybring competition. Very prestigious. And he is going to perform the uh, second piano concerto of uh, Sergei Prokofiev. And this is just a masterful, almost diabolical type concerto. It's... it's, uh, it goes all over the place, and it's it's quite virtuosic and, and very. Uh, how do I describe? Uh, in my mind, it's just as Russian as it as it, it as it gets. But it's uh, lush melodic melodies, but also goes into short little motif motivic figures that bounce all over the place, and it's in some ways almost schizophrenic. But it it it, it Prokofiev does it in a way that writes a story and puts it all together. Uh, also on that program is Rimsky-Korsakov's Scheherazade. Now this has a lot of meaning for me to do this piece because we were supposed to do this piece for our season finale of this past season. And when things happen sometimes, right, and with uh, uh, COVID, we were not able to perform it. Well, I had such a response from the musicians, texts and emails and a few phone calls, can we do this piece? We have to perform this piece. It would be wow. meaningful. And I think it is. 
in many ways. One, they just they love the music, and I'll talk about it in a second. But two, it shows that we can overcome different time periods if necessary and do what it takes. And we're going to perform this work. So uh, it has a predominant uh, violin solo that, uh, that Elizabeth Atkins will play. Uh, and Scheherazade itself is tells the story of Scheherazade, and she was married to a czar who... Uh, she had to keep telling stories over and over so she would uh, not lose her life when, because this particular czar would get rid of his wives if he got bored with them. And the whole the idea is telling a thousand and one different stories. Maestro, that sounds like a really exciting season. I know I'm looking forward to it uh, this coming fall and spring uh, to a very uh, exciting repertoire. I'm really excited as well. You've selected some great pieces, and I can't wait for these concerts. Um, speaking of which, season tickets are now on sale through the Eisman Center ticket office and online at EismanCenter.com. Thanks so much, Lori, for spending time with us today. We're all looking forward to the great programs and events the RSO has planned for the upcoming year. Maestro, thank you. It's always great to chat with you. And thank you, our listeners, for tuning in to Portraits and Music with Maestro Clay Catorio. I'm your producer and co-host, Ross Sievertson. Remember, if you haven't done so already, hit that subscribe button so you can get new episodes downloaded to you automatically. Reviews and ratings are always appreciated, and it helps us to provide you with more great inside conversations from the Richardson Symphony Orchestra. Until next time, 